and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Catherine McFarland, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Idaho College of Law. We will discuss her work on how disabilities affect law students and lawyers and how we can better accommodate people with disabilities. So welcome to the program, Kat. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. The, the pleasure is all mine. So I was wondering if we could just start really big picture for people who may not have thought about how disabilities can affect law students and and lawyers. And, and, and just if you could talk a little bit about what legal and ethical obligations law schools and law firms have to accommodate people with disabilities. Yeah, sure. So a disability accommodation can affect everything from the kind of furniture you have in your office to whether you're permitted to work a flex time schedule that accumulates hours over a week or two weeks as opposed to something a little bit more strict. It could, with respect to your work as a lawyer, involve asking a court if you can sit down during, for example, uh, your oral argument or even during cross-examination. It could affect if you have visual limitations, the kind of reading assistance you get, whether you get large text textbooks or screen that allows you to see uh, print and larger font. So it can impact quite a bit of your life as a lawyer. As a law school student, we often think about their testing accommodations, but accommodations for a law student could be something as simple as getting a disabled parking spot, which is not unfortunately as easy as it sounds, to uh, being assigned to a classroom that doesn't require you to go up steps if you have a mobility impairment. Uh, you may need to sit in the front row if you have a hearing or visual impairment. And some of those might ask a professor to do something different than what they're accustomed to. But there are quite a few accommodations that simply require one additional step to allow a student to have equal opportunity in their educational experience. So maybe we could start by talking about sort of the legal education uh, world and move on and talk about kind of legal practice later. I was wondering if you could say a little, a little something about what legal obligations law school has to um, to provide accommodations for for students who have disabilities. Yeah, sure. So accommodations are understood to provide students with an equal opportunity to receive the same kind of education that their fellow classmates are receiving. So the ban on disability discrimination in higher education can be traced back to the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, which required equal opportunity for disabled students in institutions that received federal financial assistance. So that excluded quite a few institutions and was understood to just be one small step toward providing equal opportunity. So with the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990, Title II of the ADA uh, prohibits disability discrimination in state or local services, programs, or activities that sweeps in uh, state universities. And then Title III of the ADA prohibits disability discrimination in places of public accommodation, which 
also includes private schools, so private colleges and universities, as well as graduate schools and of interest with respect to some of the cheating scandals this week, uh, institutions that provide testing for grad school admissions or undergraduate admissions also have to uh, provide disabled students with accommodations. So what kinds of disabilities might some law students have that would require uh, accommodations from from law schools? And are there some disabilities that might be more apparent to um, third parties than others? Sure. So the ADA defines disability as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits a major life activity. And since 2008, when the ADA was amended in response to certain Supreme Court decisions, disability is supposed to be interpreted broadly. So it could mean uh, something akin to what affects me, a mobility impairment that makes it hard to stand or to walk long distances, a chronic illness, um, a reoccurrence of cancer. And it could mean something that you can't see with a naked eye, as you alluded to, a a learning disability or attention deficit disorder, for example, Um, anxiety that causes panic attacks. So when it comes to what law schools find, it's a mixed bag. So with respect to learning disabilities, you may enter law school with a uh, diagnosis, right? And there are other kinds of disabilities that you may be aware of, but that you don't know require an accommodation. So there's a lot of, as I know you know, there's a lot of physical stress that Mm -hmm. uh, law school brings on. Your your vision could worsen. um, Your hands could become weak if you write with a pen or if you're typing and your your wrists hurt. Or you realize that because a law school exam is, is so long that you'll need to get up and stretch. So there are different ways that law schools can accommodate all of those disabilities. Um, but with respect to each one, there is quite a prolonged process that students have to go through to get a disability certified and then to receive an accommodation from a law school. So I, I wonder if you would mind talking a little bit about your own experience in yeah. that respect and sort of how you've negotiated that accommodation requirement with both the law school you attended as a student and then also later in your career and as a professor? Sure. So I've had rheumatoid arthritis since I was one, and I have uh, related eye disease. For most of my life, my physical issues were always mobility related. Uh, I grew up abroad. I lived in Italy, and there's quite a bit of disability prejudice and discrimination. So um, I did not share the details of my illness when I was much younger. In high school, I needed some uh, ability to make up morning classes that I missed, but I didn't really understand that that was something that the law required. Um, So fast forward through college and law school, I had no idea that I would need accommodations in law school. It didn't really cross my mind that anything about reading books and going to class would make my experience somehow more challenging because of my physical limitations. But about 
four weeks into um, my first semester, I had been writing with a pen and my hand cramped and it locked. And I've always had joint issues. And I suddenly realized I can't write with a pen anymore. I'm having pain in my wrists. And so I started looking into the accommodations process. Uh, I went to Loyola Law School and uh, their dean, Michael Waterstone, now their current dean is a disability expert. And Loyola has a tradition of of being very aware and very empathetic when it comes to disability. Uh, Still, the process uh, took quite some time. So even though I had at that time a 20 plus, uh, 20 years of diagnostic history and a condition that is never cured, I had to go back to a doctor and get certain forms certified. And then the doctor was asked to recommend accommodations, which is just kind of a, a strange question, right? Like, why would, mm-hmm. a, why would a rheumatologist know what should be asked of with respect to my law school exams? And I didn't know because I hadn't taken one yet. So, and this is a situation I think many students find themselves in. They know that they need some help, but they don't know exactly what it is. And the forms, both the medical certification and then what you ask for with respect to how you'll be accommodated, have to be turned in, uh, I'd say, four or five, six weeks before uh, a test is given. And you're never given any kind of retroactive accommodation. So if you miss classes and you want your absences to be excused, they won't be until the accommodation is in place and they'll never work retroactively. So all that I asked for was five minutes every 30 minutes away from my exam to stretch my hands and stretch my legs. And the clock stopped. And I I was really uh, self-conscious, I mean, in general, about taking my exams in a room separate from my other classmates. I felt a great deal of shame. And I was really uh, concerned that any accommodation would be seen to have helped my grades. And I, you know, like many of us, I did well in law school and I I didn't want any kind of misunderstanding to exist about how I did well. So I think I asked for an accommodation that was unnecessarily harsh. I should have just been able to sit in front of my computer without stopping the clock and interrupting my thought process. So I I think the accommodations that I asked for might've actually made my testing worse. Uh, anyway, and then I went on to get accommodations for, I took the New York bar and the California bar. And all I needed at that point was to be able to bring in a cooler with ice packs. And that required another visit to the doctor, a multi-page form. Um, one of the, one time the form got rejected because there were different, there was different color ink on it or the nurse's handwriting than the doctor's handwriting. And, uh, I mean, you know, when you're studying for the bar, And you know that I just was, we call it flaring in the autoimmune world. My knees were really swollen. I just needed ice. And it was, it was so difficult. And there, you know, to get a form rejected a few weeks before the bar exam is really scary, right? So the, the stress becomes not just the test itself, but what's going to happen to me physically during that test. And also what, when people are suspicious of something related to your physical self, it, it makes you second guess what you're asking for. Mm, mm. Yeah. So, I mean, related to that, I mean, I, I wonder if you have thoughts about what schools in particular can do to make mm-hmm. this process 
easier, less frustrating, more streamlined, and also to deal with this this kind of shame related issue or the kind of the appearances related issue that you allude to with with your fellow students yeah i think we we need a change of tone with respect to how we talk about accommodations and and one thing that happens and on the faculty side is that we have this assumption that there's certain areas of the law as law faculty that we just get i see that with respect to employment law and there's there's sort of this this notion that we we simply understand things like disability law and, and accommodations. And I think we have to step back from that and, and do some learning and do some more aggressive training. With respect to our students, I think we're my institution is absolutely terrific about supporting students who are becoming parents for the first time or have suffered a loss in their family. And there's just you know, we go to that process with it, with the idea that we help our students. With respect to accommodations, in general, in my experience, at least in my undergraduate studies, was that you you are treated like you're getting a favor, and so that that kind of approach to accommodations needs to change. And I think we need when we do diversity training or difference training of any kind, disability has to be part of it. And there's a lack of understanding of how onerous getting an accommodation is, which I think if people understood, you might understand also that because it's so difficult, you would never do it if you're faking. It's, it's so difficult to the point of it's almost not worth it to get the accommodation because it's, it's so time consuming. So people go, you know, mm. go through these incredible measures to simply be on equal footing and the time that it takes to get them there is yeah it's it's quite an undertaking uh, go ahead yeah i mean i just can't help but feel like there's a certain kind of irony cruelty and unfairness to that you know that there are people who are struggling with you know like legitimate physical and sort of mental potential health related issues who to put an extra burden on them like that, just so that they can um, just so that they can do what we want to help them do in theory. It just seems really peculiar to me. Yeah. And I think we're still seeing, you know, we're not that far away from, you know, the, the first early years of, of the ADA, you know, I was in school as a kid before, the ADA was was law, and we're, I think we're still adapting to exactly what it means and to learning disabilities in particular. But you know, one thing that would really help is the way we treat information about a student's disability and accommodation. So whenever I think about uh, accommodation, I think about equality, equality of opportunity, and and access and testing circumstances, but also. A certain amount of respect and dignity. And so mm. there's no express provision in the Rehab Act or the ADA about uh, student accommodation, confidentiality, but uh, FERPA, Family, let's see, Education Rights and Privacy Act does keep accommodation information or does require that students' accommodation information be kept confidential unless 
someone needs to know, like an administrator has what we call a legitimate educational int interest. So we do not, I think as a, as a, the law school community, not mine in particular, but all of us as academics don't think hard enough about what that legitimate educational interest is and how confidentiality could mm. really feed into a disabled student's experience at law school. So uh, laptop bans are the perfect example of where we, we go way too far with mm. respect to ruining a student's confidentiality. So there, uh, you know, I won't, I, I guess I'm not too interested in whether non-laptop learning is better. I, I want my students to simply pick what, what works for them. But as soon as you have a laptop ban, you're going to have students, and I would have been one of them, who can't handwrite or need a laptop for a different reason. So if there are students in a classroom mm -hmm. in which laptops are banned who are using a laptop, immediately you're sharing that they have an accommodation. So you've, you've shared that they are disabled, right? And what I am concerned mm -hmm. with in that situation and that decision is not necessarily, you know, somewhat paternalistic interest in how everyone's learning. I'm now extremely concerned about the disabled student when eyes are, are on them and what their stressed out experiences in the classroom simply because they've been permitted by virtue of their disability to use a laptop. So we often think in terms of how is everyone who doesn't necessarily need a laptop learning. And then we forget about the impact on the educational experience of, of students who are going to have that laptop and stand out from everyone else. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder if, is, is there a consensus among people with disabilities about how they feel about how confidentiality is treated? Because it seems like in some way going you know, a, a sort of excessive sort of focus on confidentiality almost implies like there's some reason that people should want it to be secret, you know, other than in a, for a personal reason, you know, and it doesn't seem like there's any reason anyone should feel like feel bad about the fact that they, that they need something in order to be able to succeed. Uh, and I wonder how people feel about that. I, I don't know how everyone feels. I will say that in my own experience, it feels really risky to have even the fact that I receive accommodations disclosed. Now, of course, I'm talking to you about it. It's no, it's no mystery that mm -hmm. I get them. But even what do I get them regarding? Um, I, when I worked for the city of New York, I had, you know, ergonomic furniture that not every other city employee got. I needed help breaking down boxes or stacking, you know, carrying heavy files. Whenever someone in facilities or maintenance was asked to help me out, my supervisor would communicate to them that it was a reasonable accommodation request and share with the person that mm -hmm. was, you know, just coming into my office to do something relatively clerical, something very, you know, personal about uh, my inability to do some simple manual labor. And I, I guess I felt kind of violated. My privacy felt violated. So, I, you know, mm. sometimes you're right, though. We go overboard. And when students aren't permitted, if they want to, to share what they're going through, that's too much. And so, you know, just like the attorney-client privilege that rests with the client, I think the student who's disabled should get mm. to decide 
who they talk to, and then they can choose exactly what they share, right? I have students that that often want to talk mm-hmm. to me about what they've been through, what they're going through, or maybe give a little bit more detail uh, about their classroom experience. And I always want them to be able to do that. I think from when it's administrative or if there's a disability services office, we could, as a profession, be a lot more thoughtful about we're good about keeping medical information confidential. We are a little bit too loose with sharing information about accommodations and where accommodated students take tests, um, what time they take tests, who, if they have to walk across a busy hallway and everyone knows where the accommodated test taking room is. And, you know, again, with a personal choice approach, if they don't mind, that's fine. But I, I want them to have the opportunity to mm-hmm. have a, <laughs> a less stressful testing environment and and just go about their testing experience mm-hmm. without having to additionally worry about very private information being conveyed just by virtue of where the room is. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you have thoughts about what we as professors can do to sort of build accommodation into our approach to pedagogy. Because I mean, I feel like, you know, oftentimes I don't know what students need in order to succeed. And sometimes even when I know that a student has a disability, like you can't miss it. I had a a student who was blind and it was, you know, you couldn't miss that. But I didn't get any instruction from the school about how to accommodate that student, or at least not really substantial instruction. I talked to the student to learn as best as I could what he needed. But, you know, I knew that there were other, I know that there are other students who also need things that sometimes, you know, I don't know about, or I don't, I don't think about because, you know, it doesn't occur to me. And I guess I I was thinking that there's, there's a phrase that I've heard people use in kind of a privacy law context, you know, privacy by design. And I wonder if there's like a way of like being like accommodating by design, like setting up classroom, um, procedures and pedagogical approaches that are more likely to be accessible to people, even if you don't know that they need it. Yeah, that's that, I'm glad you brought that up. There's some disability rights activists that treat disability as a social construct. So the notion being that it's not, you know, we're mislabeling something as normal. Normal is actually a, a wide range of uh, physical impairment or just physical difference. So what we could do is, for example, with respect to desk space, don't have a little sticker with someone in a wheelchair on it that signals, well, this is the one spot for the different person. Always have an entire row that doesn't have chairs in it so that someone who's in a wheelchair can just come in and sit there. And you could take the same approach with respect to don't have a main entrance that you can only get to through a flight of stairs and force people with any kind of mobility impairment or who need a ramp to go around the back, right? Everyone's Mm -hmm. entrance in the front. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of a, what we could do uh, as a culture, Um, as a, as a teacher, I announce somewhere early in the semester that I don't want to hear from students or in the hallway about how accommodations are somehow giving people 
um, some sort of advantage. I, I try and just squash that right away. And then I also share that I've been through accommodations myself and I offer to speak with anyone in confidence if they want to talk to me about my experience or ask me for advice. Uh, we have some great student services uh, people here at the University of Idaho, and they've made a point of reaching out to me with respect to how to share information during orientation about accommodations and encouraging students not to wait uh, because of the problem with not getting retroactive accommodations. I, I think in general, we just it's a matter of acceptance rather than always being suspicious and challenging anyone's assertion of disability or accommodation. And it makes me think of experiences I've had when I use my disabled parking placard. Uh, people often yell at me or come up to me and ask me, you know, why am I using a disabled spot? I've actually had this happen at a hospital right after, right after getting a chemo infusion, wow. which is, uh, you know, both ironic and very convenient because people feel very bad when you say I've just had chemo. Of course I need my <laughs> disabled parking spot, but, uh, you know, we, we sort of approach, there's this like call it the disability police or, you know, vigilante disability, um, mm challenge out there where people think it's their own responsibility to d detect fraud or, or, or lying. And, you know, we just, there's so many invisible disabilities, but you also, you just don't know, right? And to the extent there's any concern that disability is mm -hmm. being overdiagnosed, that's a problem with the medical profession. And once it gets to the point of mm. going through a doctor, going to a disability services office, passing on the information to law school administration, it's not our place to question, right? It's too many people have weighed in. Mm -hmm. And also I'd say the accommodations that students ask for, in my experience, do not alter our ability to assess their performance or follow pedagogy that we prefer. Yeah. I mean, I can't help but wonder if sometimes the fact that we put students with disabilities in a position where they have to ask for accommodations in the first place shouldn't suggest to us that maybe the rules we're coming up with aren't kind of arbitrary and unnecessary in the first place. I mean, you know, if somebody has to ask, you know, if, if a meaningful number of people can't, you know, physically, you know, can't physically do things the way they're being asked to do them, maybe we should change them across the board. Yeah, we should change the way our buildings look, the way that <laughs> we require people to be seated for hours on end. I, I've thought about it a lot in how I craft my essay exams, and I, I try and think about you know what what kind of experience do I want them to be ready for on the bar or with respect to civil procedure, how they're going to write an exciting Rule 4 motion. <laughs> but I, So what I do is... I, I always give the maximum amount of time, but I put a word count on my essay exam. So what I end up testing on is not, you know, this ability to write as much as possible um, that might be affected by how much time you have. I, I feel like I'm leveling the playing field simply by asking everyone to make choices about what they choose to, to IRAC or discuss. 
And, you know, I, I've tried to think about ways to do that with respect to even how I call on people or how we, I'm, I'm quite open about having had anxiety issues in the past and encourage students to come to talk to me, talk to me about it. And, and that interaction has actually been very freeing for me because there's so many of us that have anxiety issues. Uh, and so it becomes normalized. Right. And so we, mm. I've joked with some of my friends that every building should have um, <laughs> not a panic room, but <laughs> an anxiety room where we can all just go in and nod and, you know, <laughs> deep breathe and turn, <laughs> turn the, the lights out or do that alternate nostril breathing that apparently Hillary Clinton was doing after she lost the election. But, you know, especially, you know, I think about anxiety <laughs> and how much, and, and that's something that you know, we're still dealing with as culture, you know, we're supposed to be perfect and strong and confident as lawyers, but we lose a bit of our humanity when we don't talk about the impact of stress and, and also how to manage it and, and overcome it. And it's so helpful to know that you're not alone in that respect. So I, I feel like a lot of students who don't have disabilities have a hard time understanding those who do and the accommodations that they need. And I wonder if you have any kind of thoughts for those students or anything you'd want them to think about in that context? I, I've been impressed by my students with respect to how they deal with me. So I've, I've been in a wheelchair and they just understood that I needed help carrying books or getting in and out of doorways. And I, I sit down quite a bit during my classes and someone always makes sure that I have a chair now that I'm the professor. So maybe they're just sucking up to me. I, I, we usually, mm. there's more understanding after I teach Tennessee versus Lane, which has to do with the application of the ADA in state courthouses and a criminal defendant who refused to be carried or to, to crawl his way up to the floor. <laughs> um, anyway, so we, we talk about what does it mean when you, you could still be carried or perhaps you could crawl up to a courtroom, the sense of dignity and, and how that may require putting a ramp or an elevator in a, a beautiful courthouse that you think looks aesthetically pleasing, but also excludes you know, a significant portion of the population. So they seem to get that. And then the day after I teach that class, I have them in their own life decide at some moment when they're outside of their home to take 15 or 20 minutes and make note of what kind of places they enter and what it would be like if you had a visual impairment or a hearing impairment, or if you were in a wheelchair or on crutches and just imagine the, the barriers if you were in that position. And I've had a few students tell me that <laughs> they can't stop seeing barriers, which is exactly what I you know wanted them to think about and concern themselves with. With respect to learning disabilities, I, that's the biggest issue. People think that students are creating them, uh, are faking it. And again, I, I go back to if we have a concern about that, it's with the medical community, not, not with our students. And I, I'm just not, as a professor, concerned with giving someone, you know, half extra time or double time. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't change my ability to assess their progress. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like everyone, 
every student to relax about that too. You know, <laughs> if you have a disability as a student, your life is harder. Yeah. It's, it's just, there's so much that you have to work through and, you know, add, add on uh, medical issues and your time is very precious to the point where probably your studying and your reading time is less than a student who doesn't have a disability. So by the time you get to the test, you're already a little bit behind. And I, I just, I, I really reject the idea that there's, it's just not an advantage. I, I wrote an essay and I, I said, accommodations are not a gift of extra time. They're probably just simply a time suck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so Kat, I mean, in closing, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the pedagogical context. And I, I was wondering if you could just say, talk a little bit about sort of legal practice as, as well. And, you know, it sounds like we, we've done a lot of good things in the pedagogical context, but still have a long way to go in some respects. And I kind of wonder where you think things stand with respect to the practice of law in relation to legal pedagogy. So big law practice is still so obsessed with, you know, a trial by fire and the idea that anything that's worthwhile requires you to pull several all-nighters and, you know, in my experience, rewarded billing and overbilling and sometimes inefficiency. Uh, and to the extent you have medical appointments or your body becomes fatigued after <laughs> a 12-hour day, that becomes very difficult. And it was difficult to navigate what kind of timing or hourly accommodation was was something you could ask of a law firm where most people were were billing and, and at the firm I worked at 200 hours a month was considered at least where you should be. So there was a time when I, I had just started getting these infusions and I would walk to <laughs> a hospital near Union Square in New York and be there for four hours and then walk back to my midtown office and stay till 10 or 11. And I was quite sick when I got back and needed to be home. So I met with my supervising partner and asked for a six-week accommodation in which I could be 8 p.m. every night. I'd work on Saturday and then I'd get afternoon off on Sunday, which sounds absolutely ridiculous, but that's the kind of schedule we were on with mm. the case I was in. And the first response was no. And I asked, yeah, I asked if there was any other case that I could be on. And the response was, there's no other case like that at this firm. Now, that wasn't true. I just, you know, part of the problem you fall into when you're doing a decent job is that there's always more work for you. And your comparator isn't the person who's doing less. It's the person mm -hmm. who's doing more with your general skill level. Um, that decision got overruled by the office's managing partner. Um, but all I, you know, there was never any question posed to me about what can we do for you? How can we make this work? It was, it always felt very risky to ask for anything. And when I ended up moving into government work for, for the city, that was just a <laughs> bureaucratic nightmare for everyone. And was incredibly difficult to mm. to maneuver my way through. And, and I think there, I would have, in retrospect, I would have never asked for an accommodation. It just became 
more hassle than it was worth to the point where I was spending so much time on accommodations that at one point I asked HR if I could have um, leave granted to me uh, in a time equivalent to the time I'd spent on reasonable accommodations. Like I wanted them to give me vacation time. <laughs> that that was den- denied, but I think the point was made. <laughs> uh, wow. That's kind of shocking, really. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I would have thought that New York City would be much more progressive in that respect. I mean, it, it was in a lot of ways, but again, it's this notion that we have as lawyers and, you know, sometimes as legal educators that we just get it, right? Like we understand everything that has to do with employment law. We understand sort of generally accommodations. And then, and this is something that I, you know, watch myself on with respect. I I think I'm an open-minded person and I do work involving racial justice, but that doesn't mean I'm well-versed with respect to every kind of equal opportunity. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I really, do I want to be someone knowledgeable about this? And I'm equating that into actual knowledge or should I step back and defer to someone that is an expert in this field? So we we just become, I think we assume that we know things about, again, workplace law and discrimination that we, you know, unless that's our area, we, we really don't. Mm. Mm. Well, so it sounds like we still have a lot of work to do across the board then. <laughs> yeah, but I'm glad that you asked me about it. It's very nice to just get on... <laughs> you know, hear and uh, run my mouth about accommodations. Well, thank you so much, Kat. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. And I've, I've learned a lot. And I think this will be helpful for me as a professor. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure. It's the real thing back of your mind what you're hoping to find is the real thing it's the real thing